Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of experts. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you, Allie. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop. Uh, chemotherapy treatment side effects, prevention, and management. And uh, today's program is supported by ISI Inc. I want to thank them for their support of the program today. And it's a very important topic and one that um, is really very important to all of you um, undergoing treatment. Um, I would like to identify that there are 252 participants on today's call, and you come from all the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Indonesia, Iran, Lithuania, Nicaragua, Philippines, South Africa, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And um, we're delighted to have, well, actually it is a global call, and we'd like to, um, I would really want to welcome everyone to the call today. Delighted that you want to, on the call today, and want to learn more about the management of treatment side effects. Um, and now it is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grala. And Dr. Grala is, Albert Einstein, is, with, is Professor of Medicine with Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grala is going to present an introduction. He'll discuss COVID and cancer, communicating with your healthcare team, preventing nausea and vomiting, side effects of newer treatments, including checkpoint inhibitors, and their treatment, including rash and itching. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grala. Well, hello, and thank you, Carolyn. Uh, I'm uh, Richard Grau. I'm a medical oncologist at the Albert Einstein Cancer Center and Jacoby Medical Center in New York. I have the pleasure of starting off the program, which will discuss many areas of side effects of anti-cancer treatment, the prevention of such side effects, and their treatment if they occur. Dr. Messner um, mentioned them briefly, but I'm also so pleased to be part of this panel with uh, Carolyn Messner, Rebecca Clark Snow, and Lee Schwartzberg, all of whom will give us valuable information which can be resources to aid our patients and families. Um, and I'll discuss a few key topics as well, but first, we still have the issues of COVID-19 as this program is being presented in June of 2022. All of us are aware of the greater or lesser presence of COVID depending on our specific location and community, but let us remember that most cancers constitute an additional risk factor with COVID-19. I cannot overemphasize the crucial importance of vaccine with the life-saving uh, vaccines now available, including booster vaccinations for people with cancer and for those close to these individuals. All of us should have home test kits on hand. Now, in the U.S., these are available free of charge at www.covidtests.gov and at most pharmacies, and should be aware that for first, first sign for high-risk groups, please notify your doctor, and such additional treatments as Paxlovid pills at home may be indicated. Now, in different countries, there's different availability, but uh, these are really important aspects for all of us. Additionally, consider accessing the cancer care programs dealing specifically with COVID and cancer, which are quite available online in the cancer care archives. Related and new is the way all oncology units have gone to remarkable lengths to enhance safety for your visits. So communicate closely regarding visits or televisits, treatment and testing, your team has your best interests in, firmly in mind. Televisits remain a good idea for many individuals with cancer for some of their visits. All oncology facilities have become increasingly skilled with televisits. Dr. Schwartzberg will discuss briefly televisits, your preparation, and other related aspects in his presentation. 
In-person visits and televisits are all part of the importance of establishing and maintaining excellent communication with your healthcare team. Good communication helps everyone to individualize care for the best anti-cancer outcomes and to help preserve and improve quality of life. Some issues and problems occur only in some individuals and not in others. So good education and information from your healthcare team and communicating about your needs is vital. Rebecca Clark Snow will emphasize this as well. Of course, in many instances, your doctor or nurse may raise an issue, but there's no need to stand on ceremony. It's fine to bring up your concerns or questions first. In fact, it's appreciated. Supportive care, which is avoidance of side effects among many other things, is at least as important and at least as individualized and complicated as anti-cancer treatment, and it's a major part of excellent cancer care. Physicians, nurses, social workers, and others in oncology spend a great deal of time educating themselves about the best approaches to the prevention and treatment of side effects, which is why our panel is multidisciplinary today as part of this program. Now, most people are not aware of the major progress that has been made in the prevention of nausea and vomiting called emesis associated with chemotherapy. I wish that the news media, television, movies, newspapers would get it right. It's safe to say that the majority of people getting anti-cancer treatment and modern anti-nausea medicines today will not experience vomiting from it, although some will. Patients and families have told all of us that control of nausea and vomiting with chemotherapy is at or near the top of their concerns. First, why does nausea and vomiting occur with chemotherapy? Well, nausea and vomiting is a protective uh, response. It's a reaction to foreign substances, which normally we would eat, but the body didn't evolve to sense that we would also take in substances intravenously, as we often do with anti-cancer treatment. Sensors or receptors in the gut and in the brain monitor chemicals in the blood and the cerebrospinal fluid, not just in the stomach. It's a tricky but important protective reflex, and in this case, we want to turn it off when we don't need it. Knowing about these mechanisms turned out to be key. This, knowledge gives, a, uh, this gives us knowledge on how to prevent emesis when we block the specific and important sensors or receptors, we can prevent nausea and vomiting. The crucial receptors are mainly the serotonin receptors and neurokinin receptors, although there's some others, which we all have. Today, we can block those receptors with specifically targeted drugs, which when used properly are very helpful in preventing or lessening nausea and vomiting and turn out to have few side effects for most people. Some of the most commonly used medicines are ondansetron, Zofran, granisetron, Kytril, palinocetron, Aloxy, and a prepotent, Emend, or the combination medicine, Nepa, Akinzio. Additionally, an older class of medicines, those related to cortisone or corticosteroids and often used as dexamethasone, Decadron, can have an important role for many people as can the major tranquilizer, olanzapine. Depending on the exact chemotherapy treatment being given, your physician or nurse may give you one, two, or even three or four of these medicines as a prevention. They are often given right before chemotherapy at the treatment center, and in certain instances, you may be asked to continue some of these medicines at home to prevent what is called delayed emesis, which can occur later and is associated with some chemotherapy please be sure that you understand just how you will be receiving these medicines and feel free to discuss this with your doctor or nurse. Also, recall that not all anti-cancer treatment causes nausea or vomiting. So being clear on this was also helpful. Moreover, if you do experience nausea and vomiting, please be aware of how to report this to your team if you're uncomfortable and what steps they want you to take. Now, there are newer treatments that we all hear about. Again, in that we're speaking in June of 2022, many of you may have been seeing in the news quite a bit of encouraging information on newer treatments in cancer. 
This was all reported from the American Society of Clinical Oncology, which met earlier this week. Indeed, there was some fine information. Much of that news was based on newer classes of anti-cancer therapy, and especially involving agents called checkpoint inhibitors. These agents are monoclonal antibodies, type of protein, that are given intravenously every few weeks. They're used in a variety of cancers, including lung cancer, some gastrointestinal cancers, some breast cancers, melanoma, some lymphomas, and others. Often treatment is directed by the presence of certain molecular markers found in biopsy tissues or in a special blood test. While not exactly chemotherapy, they often come under the heading of immuno-oncology agents. They appear to work by making our own immune systems better able to recognize cancer cells that may have been able to disguise themselves and to avoid detection by our bodies. When effective, our immune system could then now recognize the cancer cells as being harmful, and this can lead to an immune response to the cancer, against the cancer. Favorably, for many people, there are few side effects, even when these agents are quite effective. But for some people, side effects do occur. I think of these agents, these immuno-oncology checkpoint inhibitors, as kind of making you sort of allergic to the cancer. So the checkpoint inhibitors also set up what's called an autoimmune reaction of your body to the cancer, which can have a good anti-cancer effect. Excellent. But sometimes there's also an autoimmune response to tissues other than the cancer, and this can lead to side effects. So these are different than most side effects to whole body or systemic treatments, such as with classical chemotherapy. Most any tissue of the body can be subject to these autoimmune side effects, although not everybody gets side effects. The most common reactions are to the skin with rash or itching, or to the thyroid gland, which can become overactive or more likely underactive, or, the lead, or to the lung leading to cough or shortness of breath, or to the intestine leading to diarrhea. Ms. Clark Snow will address diarrhea in general and from checkpoint inhibitors. I'll talk about that too. And Dr. Schwartzberg will talk about pulmonary or lung toxicity. When the thyroid gland is affected by checkpoint inhibitors, people may have energy or weight or hair or other changes. These thyroid changes can be accurately seen in some common blood tests and, if necessary, treated often with thyroid replacement pills. Sometimes the thyroid becomes underactive, but there are no symptoms, and the physician may advise only uh, uh, following this. Now, when skin rash or itching problems occur, often corticosteroid creams can be very helpful and sufficient. Sometimes the checkpoint inhibitor needs to be stopped if the rash is particularly bad. If diarrhea, often called colitis, occurs, it can be treated by typical antidiarrheals such as Ms. Clark Snow will describe. But if that's not enough, a corticosteroid medicine may need to be given for a while and or the checkpoint inhibitor may even need to be stopped, at least for a time. And there are other allergic type or autoimmune side effects that can affect other organs and often require a course of corticosteroids. Well, this really tells us why the communication is so important because different people react in different ways. And making your team aware of any issues you have can lead to uh, rapid and very often quite effective treatments. My colleagues will enlarge on some of the prominent areas that I've mentioned, and we'll talk about progress in preventing or treatment, treating other important side effects. I'll really look forward to their presentations, and I'll now turn the program back to Carolyn Messner. Carolyn? Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grala. That was outstanding. A wonderful introduction to the call and setting the stage for the program today, and really lots of wonderful content. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Rebecca Clark-Snow. And Ms. Clark Snow is an oncology is oncology supportive care consultant and an oncology nurse, and she'll be discussing the role of oncology nurses on the healthcare team and managing constipation, diarrhea, fatigue, and hair loss. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Rebecca Clark Snow. Thank you, Carolyn, for the kind invitation to speak during this afternoon's teleconference. Um, I've been given the opportunity to discuss a few topics of interest 
uh, to patients this afternoon, and, and as you've mentioned, I'll have some condensed information about the role of the oncology nurse, fatigue, diarrhea, and constipation. The Oncology Nursing Society, our professional organization, can currently boast a membership of more than 35,000 nurses here in the U.S. and abroad. That number represents individuals who have chosen to dedicate their careers to the care of patients with cancer throughout what is referred to as the cancer continuum. Many were certified in this specialty, making them experts in the care of patients with cancer. The definition of oncology nursing as a specialty is to reduce the risks, incidence, and burden of cancer by encouraging healthy lifestyles, improving the management of cancer symptoms and side effects throughout the course of treatment and beyond, while also coordinating the complex care needs of every patient. Nurses provide a holistic approach to patient care, taking into consideration cultural, ethical, and spiritual preferences of all patients. Oncology nurses are also politically active and frequently meet with senators and other representatives to influence decision-making on pending bills related to nursing, cancer, opioids, coordination of care, and palliative care. There's been many trips to Washington, D.C. to put forward consequential agendas on behalf of patients. As important members of the healthcare team, oncology nurses practice in tandem with physicians and other disciplines such as social work, radiology, pharmacy, occupational and physical therapy, and insurance to name a few. And this we do across the care continuum. It is truly a multidisciplinary approach to caring for all patients, as Dr. Grawl mentioned, and one which will utilize the experience and expertise of these individuals. I believe that by advocating for people at risk for or with a diagnosis of cancer, by delivering education throughout treatment decision-making and planning, with particular attention to each individual's need to obtain information that will be beneficial at every step during this most important life event, we are ensuring access to and providing quality cancer care to improve outcomes and reduce the impact of cancer on patients, families, communities, and more broadly populations. New cancer treatments have transformed the cancer care landscape and the nurses' role in supporting patients receiving multimodality treatment regimens, often administered in an ambulatory setting. This might include surgery, chemotherapy, immunotherapy and radiation therapy. We assess for complications and side effects of treatment, educate patients and significant others on the prophylaxis and management of symptoms, optimize quality of life, and advocate for the uniqueness of all patients. We know that better symptom management leads to reduced unplanned care and unexpected subsequent costs for patients. Oncology nurses have several paths to choose from during their career. We are clinicians, scientists, educators, mentors, all working together to transform the way the world cares for cancer. Probably the most important and consistent aspect of nursing that is consequential for all patients and family members is providing education and tools to assist with navigation through all phases of care. Your nurses are your best resources to clarify information, discuss, and very importantly, to reach out and report symptoms and concerns. I've been asked to touch on a few side effects that patients have identified as being especially concerning and at times challenging to manage, and I'll begin with fatigue which is that distressing, persistent, and subjective sense of tiredness or exhaustion that may not be consistent with the level of activity, but does interfere with usual function. 
It is one of the most commonly reported problems by patients. It may be related to the disease itself or cancer treatment. It may also continue beyond when treatment has completed in patients who are long-term cancer survivors. Approximately 80 to 100% of patients with cancer report experiencing some degree of fatigue. Importantly, fatigue may be an isolated problem or it may occur as just one element in a cluster of symptoms such as pain, depression, shortness of breath, lack of appetite, and sleep disturbances. A thorough history taken by physicians and nurses can determine if fatigue is a presenting symptom of a new cancer diagnosis or if it is a symptom resulting from a particular treatment. Because it is subjective, we look to our patients to report any fatigue, including when it began, its severity, whether it is mild, moderate, or severe, if anything helps to alleviate it, how much does the fatigue interfere with daily activities? They'll ask you if you're continuing to work, if you're able to. Are you able to take care of your family? And more importantly, as well as to continue to enjoy those important things that are fulfilling and satisfying in your life. There are several recommendations for managing fatigue, which may include energy conservation and activity management, planning and scheduling activities that require high energy use, balancing rest and activity to maintain adequate energy. You may also consider exercise, possibly yoga, after discussing with your physician or nurse practitioner. Your team will manage concurrent symptoms, which may make a difference in the degree of fatigue you're experiencing. All concurrent medication should be reviewed, and this will be done with each clinic visit or sooner if needed. And we could have discussions to identify ways to reduce stress. Our patients should feel comfortable discussing with their healthcare team the best approach to manage fatigue. You may hear several things that some believe are helpful to treat or manage fatigue, but in fact, these alternative treatments really should be reviewed with your healthcare team. There is literature which documents that effective has not been established for things like acupressure, acupuncture, uh, art therapy, et cetera, in the fatigue setting. While most of us have experienced some degree of constipation at some point during our lives, which usually resolves without consequence, for patients with cancer, constipation may be a chronic condition or condition not related to cancer. Very often it results when there are issues related to immobility or dehydration as a result of cancer treatment that directly affects the bowel or as a result of a medication. Opioid-induced constipation may be a potential problem in patients who require that specific medication for pain management. Having spent several years as a nurse coordinator working with a breast surgeon, constipation was a common side effect seen postoperatively despite everyone's best intentions to provide both the detailed pre- and post-op education. It is uncomfortable, insidious, distressing, and requires immediate attention and intervention. Constipation may also be associated with certain anti-cancer medications. A thorough assessment obtained by patient interview will provide important information regarding a patient's knowledge of what constipation is and is a perfect opportunity to remind patients to report significant changes in their normal bowel pattern as well as any pain, cramping, gas, pressure, bleeding, nausea and vomiting, rectal pressure, and of course, a description of the stool. Prevention is always ideal. Nurse-led instruction will include lifestyle education consisting of increasing dietary fiber, increasing fluid intake, especially water, and methods to increase mobility and exercise. Medication intervention or a bowel regimen is needed would initially be treatment with a stool softener with or without Senna. 
if there is no relief, additional medications such as magnesium citrate may be prescribed. Communication and frequent follow-up between patients and nurses is key to determine if interventions have been effective or need to be modified. Diarrhea is a common side effect of some chemotherapy regimens. It may also occur in patients undergoing radiation treatment to the pelvis or abdomen. Certain biotherapy and targeted therapies are associated with a greater risk of diarrhea, as Dr. Grala mentioned. If severe, it can cause fluid and electrolyte imbalances, malnutrition, dehydration, decreased energy levels, and in some cases, hospitalization. It may even interfere with scheduled treatment if not successfully managed. As with constipation, conversations with patients should include routine assessment of bowel habits, noting any change at all, consistently at stools, usually an abnormal increase in loose stools, abdominal pain, signs and symptoms of dehydration, and duration of symptoms. Patients will always be encouraged to call and report these changes without hesitation. Treatment may include loperamide, four milligrams initially, then two milligrams every four hours after each loose stool, not to exceed 15 milligrams a day. If diarrhea persists despite loperamide, the physician may consider additional treatment, including intravenous hydration. It is also a good idea to keep a detailed diary of side effects that can be shared with your physician and nurses. Diarrhea is a challenge for patients, but with in-depth assessments and optimal treatment, nurses are able to minimize the potential for increased side effects associated with treatment-inducing diarrhea. The last side effect I'll discuss this afternoon is alopecia or hair loss. Another highly distressing treatment-related side effect for women, men, and children. It may typically begin one to three out, I'm sorry, one to three weeks after the first cycle of chemotherapy and may be aggravated after subsequent cycles. It is important that our patients understand that this is not associated with all chemotherapy. The occurrence and severity of chemotherapy-induced alopecia depends on the dose and administration schedule of specific chemotherapy. Chemotherapy targets rapidly growing cells, so not only are tumor cells damaged, which is a desired response, but hair follicles, which proliferate, proliferate quickly, are also damaged, causing hair loss. Once treatment has been completed, hair regrowth will begin, and some patients experience changes in hair color, texture, and growth rate. Interventions to prevent alopecia are best discussed with a physician who can discuss pros and cons of some treatments you may have researched and heard of. And I believe Dr. Schwartzberg is going to talk a bit about that. It's been my pleasure to share this information with you this afternoon, and please know that your oncology nurses are dedicated to ensuring that you have all of the information and resources ready available to make informed decisions, manage side effects at home, and have a list of contacts handy to call for questions or concerns. Please also remember to use your patient portals if available in your institution. Thank you all, and have a good summer. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Klux. Now, that was outstanding, just a wonderful presentation and a lot of valuable information to our participants, and I know that they'll be working more closely with their oncology nurses now that they have a much clearer sense of the role of the oncology nurse in the management of treatment side effects, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Lee Schwartzberg, and Dr. Schwartzberg is Chief Medical Oncology and Hematology, renowned Institute for Cancer, Professor of Clinical Medicine, University of Nevada in Reno. And Dr. Schwartzberg will be addressing televisits, fever, its management and prevention, managing hand-foot syndrome and neuropathy, and managing pulmonary toxicity, including new to, newer agents. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Schwartzberg. Thank you so much, Carolyn, and I'm very grateful and privileged 
to be a part of this panel with my uh, colleagues and to talk to you all today about these topics, which are so important for cancer patients and their caregivers. I want to start by following up with uh, on what Dr. Rao said about telehealth and telemedicine, introducing that topic. One of the few advances that came from COVID or, uh, was the ability for providers in the United States to more broadly use telehealth and telemedicine visits. And of course, the rationale for that was that we wanted to avoid visits of vulnerable patients like cancer patients, as was mentioned, to hospitals and healthcare facilities where uh, COVID might be prevalent. And that actually was uh, a wonderful addition to our armamentarium because it was not used very widely before uh, COVID. It remains um, uh, as part of the way we see patients today. And there are a few things that you can do to prepare for a telemedicine appointment. And when I'm talking about telemedicine, I'm referring typically to a internet provided video chat enabled visit with your uh, provider, be that your physician or your uh, pr uh, practitioner. Now, the most important thing you can do is get organized for this visit uh, just like you would for any other visit, and to have a list of the concerns that you want to address with your provider. Also very importantly, and something we've seen in practice, is that all visits cannot be completed sometimes because the equipment has not been checked or some individuals are not certain on how to sign in uh, to the website that connects you to your provider. We use uh, a number of different third-party solutions for this. So I would recommend that you check your computer, check your internet connection before the visit. If you have questions about how to connect, please call your oncology nurse who can walk you through the process of, uh, of connecting to uh, the telemedicine visit. Now, since COVID has at least partially uh, receded, we're having more visits in person than we used to. But we have found that particularly for people that have transportation issues or live a very far distance from their provider, that telemedicine visits are essential now to keep the pace of discussion and communication with your oncology providers up to date. And you can consider using them when for example, there's a toxicity check. If you've had chemotherapy and your oncology providers want to know how you did, particularly after the first cycle of a new regimen, that's a great use of it. When you need to have an actual physical examination or, or a laboratory drawn, uh, then in-person visits are still probably preferred. But even there, we can do remote laboratories if you live far distance and review them on a telemedicine visit. I do uh, want to uh, state that the video portion of a telemedicine visit can be useful. There are a couple of different ways. For example, if you have uh, something uh, like a rash, your physician can see it and act on it, and, it's, and uh, so, so is using pictures that you can send uh, through the internet, uh, through text chats, to particularly to your oncology nurses who will usually provide that. And then some um, institutions are now using remote monitoring. This is just coming into oncology. It's mainly used in cardiology. But there is the possibility in certain areas to have things like your vital signs monitored and your oxygen level. And I think we'll see much more of this in the future, which allows us to communicate in a two-directional way between our providers and our patients uh, much more effectively. I'm going to move on to the side effects now, and uh, the first thing I want to talk about is fever, and particularly the fever in the context of what we call neutropenic fever. So fever, as everyone knows, is a cardinal symptom of infection. While fever can be due occasionally to other aspects of cancer, including from the cancer itself, typically if a patient receiving uh, cancer chemotherapy has a fever, 
we consider strongly the fact that they may have an infection. The most important thing about cancer chemotherapy is that it can cause, as its usually most frequent side effect, what we call myelosuppression. Myelosuppression refers to a reduction in the blood cells, and particularly the white blood cells, which are the first line of defense of our immune system against bacterial infections. Most, but not all, chemotherapy causes this. And as Dr. Grallo said about fast-growing uh, cells, and, and uh, Ms. Clark Snow uh, also mentioned this, blood cells are very quick-growing, and they turn over very quickly including the neutrophils or the white blood cells that fight infection. So cancer chemotherapy will have sometimes a profound effect on this. When the white blood cell count goes very low and a patient develops fever, we believe that represents infection, even if you don't have signs and symptoms of infection, like a sore throat or a cough or you see a pustule, uh, or you have irritation. The reason that you may not have symptoms is that the white blood cells help cause the inflammation and uh, the symptoms you have. So we take very seriously fever when the white blood cell count is low. That typically occurs about 7 to 14 days after a particular round of chemotherapy, and, uh, although it can vary with different chemotherapy. So you have to be careful there, and that's why your physician will also often tell you that if you develop a fever, after you get chemotherapy, you should call the office so that you can discuss what to do about it. Luckily, we have um, medications that can prevent neutropenia, that lowering of the white blood cell count, and importantly, prevent neutropenia and fever. If you get neutropenia and fever, it can lead to sometimes serious infection. So we want to try to prevent it. And it's important if you're getting a chemotherapy regimen that is likely to cause that, that you take the medication, which is called GCSF, also known as pegfilgrastim for a long-acting uh, form or filgrastim for a short-acting form that has to be given uh, daily as a subcutaneous under-the-skin injection. It's important to start that with the first round of chemotherapy. And, and your oncology provider should know this and uh, give you this medication when the chemotherapy is of sufficient toxicity that it might cause that. And we know now, essentially for every chemotherapy regimen, what is the risk of neutropenia. And uh, taking these medications will dramatically reduce the risk of febrile neutropenia. They're usually given the day after chemotherapy, but there are some devices that you can place on your skin the day you get the chemotherapy and deliver it the day after, which is also useful for patients that live a far distance from their provider. This has really revolutionized the, our ability to give myelosuppressive or white blood cell count reducing chemotherapy and is now standard across the board. The next symptom I want to talk about is hand-foot syndrome. Hand-foot syndrome is what it sounds like, you get uh, effects on your hands and feet typically, and it starts as redness and thickening of the skin of the hands and feet. And if it gets more severe, it can cause blistering, peeling of uh, the, the fingertips and the tips of the toes, occasionally can affect the nails. Um, it can be painful uh, when it gets more severe as well. The most common drug that causes hand-foot syndrome is one called capecitabine, also known as Zolota, and that is a very commonly used uh, chemotherapy drug. It's an oral drug. The management of hand-foot syndrome starts with being uh, very careful to note it and tell your physician and nurse if it happens during the course of treatment. This particular drug um, is given daily for a period of time, often one week to two weeks. It, and the hand-foot syndrome usually occurs later in, uh, in the late uh, days of treatment or even after the treatment. Usually there's a break of a week or more after you get chemotherapy with this drug. So first of all, it's uh, being aware of it and uh, communicating to your healthcare providers that it happens when you see them. Doses can be adjusted and control hand-foot syndrome. Moisturizers and emollients for the skin are very important as well 
And if you're taking that drug or other drugs, a few others that cause hand-foot syndrome, you should um, ask your provider what you should use on your skin. Although over-the-counter strong moisturizers seem to work the best. There are other medications that can be used if it gets more severe. But typically, hand-foot syndrome, although common, can be easily managed by changing the schedule of capecitabine and other drugs and by, again, preparation uh, for prevention with moisturizers and other topical uh, kinds of uh, measures. The next one I want to talk about is neuropathy. Now, neuropathy is uh, a toxicity that's also associated with certain types of drugs, and they're usually the drugs we call the tubulin inhibitors, docetaxel, paclitaxel, aribulin, venerelvine, vincristine. Now, these drugs work on the, um, the nerves that go into the extent of your body, particularly your hands and your feet. And basically what they do is attack the um, insulation on those nerves. It's akin to a wire that has rubber or uh, plastic on top of it to, so you don't touch the actual wire, which is conducting the signal much like a nerve does. So it's usually the end of the nerves that get affected. And what neuropathy means is is either sensory or a motor neuropathy. Sensory meaning you can get numbness and tingling and pain, usually, again, in your fingers and toes. And if it gets more severe, it can affect the strength in your hands or your feet. We don't have absolute uh, evidence of ways to prevent neuropathy to date. Neuropathy is a common symptom we see in other diseases um, as a function of the disease itself, particularly diabetes, which also affects the nerves. Uh, So people with diabetes are at more risk for developing neuropathy. We can adjust the doses or hold doses for neuropathy. We have symptomatic treatment, which is um, uh, using drugs like gabapentin and pregabalin or neurontin and Lyrica. But those really help the symptoms. They don't prevent uh, neuropathy, nor do they actually treat it, but they do help the symptoms. There is some evidence now that using cryotherapy or putting hands and feet in water to reduce the blood flow to the hands and feet while you're getting chemotherapy may work to reduce neuropathy. And I think that's a strategy to discuss with your provider, particularly if you're at high risk. Finally, I wanted to talk about pulmonary toxicity or lung toxicity. Dr. Grala mentioned that the checkpoint inhibitors, while amazing drugs, do cause this general symptom of uh, uh, or effect of autoimmune effects on other parts of the body, and that can be on the skin, on the intestine, the liver, but also the lungs are frequently an organ that's affected. That manifests itself by shortness of breath, and we can see on x-rays what we call infiltrates, and that is autoimmune pneumonitis. What's most important here is that if you develop these symptoms and you're talking to a physician, for example, in an emergency room or your primary care physician who is not familiar with this, that they get in touch with your oncologist because, as Dr. Grala mentioned, steroids are frequently used, um, like medicines like dexamethasone that he talked about, are also very useful, uh, but they have to start early to get the best effect here. In some cases, we have to hold the checkpoint inhibitors or um, uh, even occasionally discontinue them. And one other newer drug that was also talked about a lot this past week at the ASCO meeting was a newer drug called uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan. This is one of some drugs that cause another type of pulmonary toxicity called interstitial lung disease, which essentially is an infiltrate and causes uh, the same shortness of breath and cough that most of the other uh, lung toxicities do. So uh, if you're taking that drug and you develop any symptoms, you should immediately report that uh, to your provider. So with that, I think I will turn it over back to Carolyn and we'll be happy to take your questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Schwartzberg. That was outstanding and just a wonderful, just a wonderful presentation. Um, and uh, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, uh, so I want to thank you very much um, for your 
outstanding presentation. Um, and uh, to best meet your needs. And now I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care, and then I'm going to move right into the questions. Um, Cancer Care is a national organization. We have a Hope Line, an 800 number, and a website as well. Um, and we're staffed by about 40 oncology social workers. So what do we do? We offer support, online support group, case management, practical financial and co-payment assistance. We also offer these workshops, and we also offer publications, and we also have a pet assistance program for those of you who may have a cat or a dog and who needs assistance either in, in taking the dog for a walk or changing the litter box or getting appropriate food for your um, pet or your cat or dog. So um, those are a snapshot of our services that we offer, and please do feel free to contact Cancer Care for any help that we may be able to provide. And you all, at the end of this program, well, actually, um, on Monday, you'll be getting a SurveyMonkey evaluation in which you'll be able to write comments, but you're also going to get any of the tips or suggestions we re recommended that involve a website or anything like that. We will be sending to you, so you'll have that as well. And now we're going to move on to questions, and there's a lot of them. Um, there's a lot of them, so I'm going to ask um, uh, Allie to go ahead and explain to people how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try, try to take as many of your questions as possible. Thank you. And those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking the Ask a Question box. Please type in your question there and hit Submit. Please go ahead. Okay. So we have um, a lot of questions that came in just during the program itself. So um, so for Dr. Growler, please comment on ports in chest and chemo headaches. I didn't hear the beginning. Comment on what? On ports on ports in oh. chest and chemo headaches. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, first of all, the uh, I think you're talking about an infusion port, and uh, uh, infusion ports um, uh, are usually implanted entirely under the skin, and uh, uh, this uh, allows for easier administration of chemotherapy for many uh patients where it's appropriate, and can be entirely implanted under the skin, and uh, then works as an intravenous line. And then for some malignancies, such as acute leukemia, there are larger ports which are not completely implanted. Um, uh, you know, headache can occur uh, for many people independent of this, but chemotherapy can cause uh, headaches as well, and uh, also sometimes the administration of chemotherapy is associated with headaches, as well as some of the anti-nausea medicines, such as the mm -hmm. Cetrons. Uh, one can start with simple uh, remedies, such as uh, Tylenol, uh, uh, acetaminophil, para paracetamol, or with uh, uh, anti-inflammatory non-steroidal drugs such as ibuprofen uh, for this. If you have this every time you get your chemotherapy, then uh, taking something right before the chemotherapy or the anti-nausea medicines would be a good idea. Uh, otherwise, you can see that. Now, if the simple medicines do not take care of your headache, you should discuss this uh, 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 easily with your nurse or doctor, and it's probably a good idea in any case. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for Ms. Um, Rebecca Clark Snow. Um, so is the oncology nurse the nurse who administers the treatments, or is the ON the practical nurse? If you could address that, please. Uh, I think you asked if, if if the oncology nurse is the person who actually administers a chemotherapy or if it's an LPN. Is that yes. correct? Yes, correct. So typically it's been my experience that uh, chemotherapy is administered by a registered nurse and not a licensed practical nurse. Uh, there's a difference in the education that each of these nurses uh, has been through, and unfortunately, nursing has is has historically had separate, several different levels at which uh, nurses can become nurses, either uh, as a licensed practical nurse or uh, through an associate's degree or bachelor's degree, but 
generally, it is a registered nurse who administers the chemotherapy. And in most cases, institutions require that each of these nurses are certified. Uh, there's a specific test that has to be taken and completed and successfully passed in order to administer uh, medications to patients. Excellent. Thank you. And um, for Dr. Schwartzberg, um, would you recommend vitamin B6 for HFS? And if you could explain what HFS is. Uh, yeah, the hand foot syndrome. Uh, I'm not sure that there's any evidence that vitamin C plays an important role in uh, hand foot syndrome. And uh, in, uh, in the past, there, the B vitamins were explored, but the clinical trials that looked at that did not show a consistent benefit there. So in terms of vitamin supplements, uh, we don't have a clear recommendation that uh, supplements will help. I also want to point out that high doses or mega doses of vitamins in general should be avoided during chemotherapy. There is a body of literature that suggests during chemotherapy, drugs like uh, or uh, supplements like vitamin C at high doses and uh, particularly antioxidants can interfere with the benefit of chemotherapy. So while antioxidants may play a role in preventing cancer in healthy people, um, they should be um, avoided during active cancer treatment. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and uh, for Dr. Grala, my oncology team does not address my side effects at all. Is there a, a database organization that refers um, or rates oncologists nationwide? I need a team that's collaborative and knowledgeable on the latest treatment modalities. Uh, yes, you do. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I would try to discuss again with my team and, uh, and see. Now, um, I don't know where you live or whatever, but um, uh, I think that uh, you should ask other physicians in your area um, uh, who they would recommend uh, because if you're not getting the kind of information that you need. But I, I would start by talking directly with my medical oncologist or the oncology nurse and, say, and make sure they understand that you're not feeling that uh, you've been satisfied uh, with this uh, knowledge base, et cetera. Um, uh, there is the uh, uh, National Cancer Institute 1-800 uh, number where you can ask for advice on this or even the, uh, um, uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncology for a little help uh, on this. But I would start with my own team and say, hey, we're missing something here, gang. Let's uh, get together. Because most places that provide cancer care these days pride themselves on, on making sure that there is such good information and that there is good communication. But otherwise, uh, maybe the National Cancer Institute 1-800 number um, uh, what is it? One eight hundred for cancer. I think that's yes. That's it. Yeah, one eight hundred for cancer. Yeah, right. and we'll actually send that. We'll actually send all that yeah. to all of you. All that yeah. information. And uh, you can go from there. And they usually are quite helpful on uh, on on giving advice uh, in the U.S. Uh, in that area. But uh, start with your own team, and then if necessary, reach out. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and I guess for um, Ms. Um, Fox Snow, um, so are there any solutions for chemo ports that flip or turn so that it's difficult to access the port? I'm on my second port, and this is a recurring problem. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I, I've heard that um, that does happen frequently. And what happens is that patient is, is usually sent to radiology to have them take a look at it to actually see what kind of position that it's in um, and uh, if it needs to be, if it's not in the correct position, if it needs to be removed, then, then that's another consideration. But, you know, they're not always easily accessed, unfortunately, but nurses are very skilled at being able to locate exactly where that needle needs to go 
but occasionally there are some difficulties with that. And if that's the case, then they usually end up, as I said, uh, having someone in radiology take a look at it to make sure the placement is, is as it should be. Excellent. Thank you. And for Dr. Schwartzberg, how soon can you expect to experience any side effects after the first chemo treatment is administered? It varies very much as to the individual side effect. So in terms of nausea and vomiting that Dr. Grella discussed so nicely, um, it can occur as soon as uh, within hours after the chemotherapy is delivered and um, usually occurs within the first five days if it's from the chemotherapy. But as he emphasized, we have very effective treatments uh, for the majority of people for nausea. So that tends to be a more acute side effect. Some of the other side effects we see are delayed just by the way they work in the body. So as I mentioned, neutropenia, the low white blood cell count, typically hits about 7 to 10 or 14 days after the chemotherapy. So it's a delayed effect. Hair loss is a, a delayed effect, which typically occurs... 14 to 21 days after chemotherapy, if it's one of the drugs that causes more severe uh, uh, hair loss. And neuropathy that we talked about is tends to be a very late side effect and typically occurs after several cycles of chemotherapy and can even occur after chemotherapy is completed and can peak sometimes after it. The one side effect that you should be um, particularly uh, astute to is uh, diarrhea, which for many of the drugs we're using today, some of the newer targeted therapies, unfortunately, gastrointestinal uh, complications are still fairly common. For many of them, they tend to occur mostly in uh, around the second week of chemotherapy, of chemotherapy. And many of those drugs, by the way, are oral, not intravenous drugs that you take daily. So you're not coming to your doctor necessarily, and you may not even have a telemedicine visit. So I don't think we've mentioned it on this call, but it's so important to communicate with your healthcare team when you're taking an oral agent, particularly the targeted therapies, because those side effects will only be known to them if you communicate with them. And for diarrhea in particular, as soon as that happens, you should start uh, some of the um, medications that Ms. Clark Snow talked about. So uh, it's very variable, and uh, uh, every person should have a chemotherapy education visit with their healthcare team before they start a new treatment where they go over the expected side effects, if any, and when they will occur. Well, thank you. And then this will be the last question um, for Dr. Grawler. Um, Thank you for this wonderful session. I was wondering how often blood tests need to be conducted during chemo treatment. Should the patient undergo regular blood tests after the administration of each chemo session? Thank you. Uh, well, that's uh, very interesting. Uh, before I uh, approach that, I just want to uh, agree entirely with Dr. Schwartzberg. So, you know, on this program, we've talked about lots of different side effects, uh, and not everybody will have all of them, and some people won't have any of them. But uh, your healthcare team, your doctors and nurses, understand those uh, uh, side effects that are most likely for you to have. And so they'll want to educate you on those one, two, or three, and will also uh, make it clear to you what the time course is for these uh, that may occur. We've tried to approach a whole uh, range of different side effects, but uh, nobody should fear that they're likely to have all of them. But what are the two or three that are most likely, and what should you be looking for? Now, um, many of us uh, feel that, uh, uh, I think almost all of us feel that we need to have blood tests before the next course of treatment um, to be sure that the, the, the body is doing well and that metabolically and that uh, for um, uh, blood counts that everything is up to par and ready to go. 
Um, it is, I think, individual whether you get blood tests during that time, in other words, before you're ready for the next course. Some doctors like to try to get some blood tests at the time that they think, for instance, the blood count will be lowest. Uh, I personally do not do this in most cases, only in individuals at greatest risk. Most of the time, uh, uh, for most of my patients and most of the treatments, I don't require this, but usually shortly before treatment is when I want to evaluate. I'm not saying there aren't exceptions, but as a general rule in my practice, we don't get uh, 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 blood tests in between. But for certain individuals with certain medicines, they like that. But as a general rule in my practice, that's not what we do. So I just want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. And all of our participants for asking such great questions. And this has been an extraordinary program. We could go on for another hour at least because we have many more questions in queue. But I do want to be respectful of everyone's time. So I do want to thank our speakers and our participants. But I do want to also, for our participants, um, say a few words about questions. So for those of you who got to ask a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you who are thinking of a question, we want you to take what you've learned today back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best, and they actually will be most able to address your questions. See this program as a role play in asking questions. And what you did learn from all of our speakers was that all of your questions were phenomenal. They were excellent questions. And you need to ask them over and over again until you get the answers that you need. And we will be sending with SurveyMonkey at the end of, well, actually by, on Monday. And we will include um, various websites that we mentioned on today's program and also any telephone numbers that would be helpful to all of you to have um, as resources. In addition to, we do appreciate your filling out the evaluation form. Um, and um, so I hope that that will be helpful to you. Also, I don't want anyone to leave this call feeling that you're alone. I want you to know that you're now part of Community of Support, and we are all here to help you. And if you wish to take advantage of the Cancer Care Services, you can contact us, and you'll be getting, again, a link to all the ways that you can contact Cancer Care. And again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. With that, that does conclude today's call. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.